Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode... Jamie, what are you doing in my studio? Uh, um, excuse me. I'll just be one moment. <laughs> Wait, what are you doing? There can be only one! Ow! 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 Don't bite! Stop it! Z, help! The hell? Redfern, come here! Give me the prize! No. Jamie. What were you thinking? You can't just take my show as if it was yours. This isn't Manifest Destiny. Fine, I didn't want to. It was just a stupid show and it doesn't even have British accents. <laughs> Says the Englishman who's running a History of the United States podcast. And you. What? What did I say about keeping Carling beer in the house? That we would end up with Mancunians. Yeah. Yeah, sorry. Okay, let's get the music queued up and do the show. You might want to get that looked at. Yeah, Mancunians. Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie. So is mine. Redfern, I swear to God, this is the last time. And this is episode 200, the Q&A. We're at episode 200, guys. And when you take into account the combo episodes and members episodes, we're actually a lot closer to 300. I never imagined that something like this would be a part of my life. And so while I usually do a preamble talking about membership and thanking a few members for signing up, this time, I'd just like to thank all of you. You've all done your part to help make this possible. And thank you very much. To celebrate the 200th episode, I put out a call to everyone to submit their questions and said that you could ask anything you wanted to know. You could ask about the show, history, me, whatever. And I'm holding true to my word. You were allowed to ask anything. And so thanks to a couple of you, that means that this might not be the best episode for kids. Fair warning. And to start with, my friend Joe over at the Interesting Times podcast pitched a question to me. And here it is. Hey Jamie, Joe here. Question for you. On the podcast, you've mentioned a lot of weird stuff in pseudo-history like kings descended from Woden, magical anti-snake shirts, Alfred being this kind of prodigy who gets all poked up at a really young age. Do you have any favorite or least favorite chunks of bs and pseudo history that you found while doing the podcast are there any things that just make you want to tear your hair out and you wish that people would stop talking about thanks what i like about this question is i can take it all kinds of different ways and the really easy answer to it is the myth that the dark ages suck i mean i really wish that myth would go away but on the other hand i feel like i've spent the last four years making the case against it so that would be a lazy answer so let's go old school with this one and to one of my favorite hobby horses. I really wished that the myth that Rome was good for Britain would just go away. I hate the idea that a few towns getting aqueducts and heated floors for a century or two compensates for the abject misery that the occupation brought. I mean, we've got hard scientific proof that the health and lifespans of the Brits dropped precipitously with the arrival of Roman living. And yet people still want to talk about how it's great because look at those hippocausts. And frankly, the argument in favor of Roman Britain relies entirely on identifying with the tiniest fraction of the aristocrats in Britannia. And for them, fair play, it was really good. But that doesn't mean that it was good for Britain in general. And frankly, the pro-Roman Britannia myth has a modern corollary in history. When you hear someone talking about how great Rome was for Britannia because of hippocausts and aqueducts, think about the situation in Congo. Because frankly, this is a lot like claiming the Belgian occupation of Congo was actually a good thing for the Congolese. 
because the Dutch and a few other rich people in Congo were living pretty good. It's kind of dark, right? And that's actually why I don't like the myth that the Roman occupation of Britain was a good thing. Kirk asks, How many blessed events did the blessed womb of Judith have? Well, we know that Judith had three children we know of. She had Baldwin II, and he actually ended up marrying Alfred's daughter, Aelfrith, who has like the worst name to pronounce ever. And those two actually became quite influential, though somewhat controversial, especially Baldwin II. She also had another son named Raoul, and he became the Count of Cambrai. And she had one other son, who was named Charles, presumably named after her father. But he died very young. The thing I find impressive, though, is the fact that her family still sits on the throne today. Because Queen Matilda, wife of William the Conqueror, was a descendant of Judith. Kirk also asks, I've been told what a dowry is and what it was meant to be for. I've got all the important details. But where was it kept? With raids and such like, it probably wouldn't be very safe. Not in a small, one-roomed hut with little to no furniture. Where on earth would it be kept? Especially in the 8th or 9th century. That's an excellent question, and I'm not sure if I have a clear answer for you. You are correct that there weren't a ton of places to hide money. These were small houses. But it is possible they might have done what people have done for centuries, which is hide their valuables under floorboards or in the roofing or somewhere sneaky like that. Something else to keep in mind is that many times hordes were buried, which is why every now and then someone finds a hoard of gold or silver in their backyard. And that's an easy solution, right? You just sneak off, make sure that no one's watching, and then you find an easily recognizable spot and bury your gold. The trouble with that, of course, though, is that if you end up killed or you lose your faculties, that money is gone until someone stumbles upon it. The other issue is that if you don't do a very good job burying it, someone might come along and nick it. But if you don't have a bank available, this might be your best bet. MJ asks... Have you noticed there seems to be a rise in the number of Bernaceans in the world? Yeah, I live in Portland, so I have a front row seat to that growing trend, and feeling the burn isn't just for the sons of Ida anymore. Nikhil asks, who are you going to vote for? Well, I'm not a U.S. citizen, I'm actually a British citizen, so I can't vote. But Nana can, and so I dropped by and asked her about the coming election and what she thought about it. You know, you've got to vote, or you should vote, you know, you've got the right to vote, so why shouldn't you use it? And well, I think it's wrong not to use it. But just be careful who you vote for. What do you mean by that? Don't vote for Donald Trump. <laughs> Nana coming out strong against Donald Trump. <laughs> and since I didn't want to just do a negative ad with my Nana, I also checked in to find out who she favored in the general election, and here's what she had to say on that. Bernie. Okay. Definitely Bernie. Are you feeling the burn? Yes, I'm feeling the burn. <laughs> Philip asks, what's your opinion of the TV show The Last Kingdom? Better or worse than Vikings? Well, what I've seen so far suggests to me that The Last Kingdom is vastly superior to Vikings. Actually, Z and I have just watched the first couple episodes, and we've decided that we're going to do a side episode covering what we think about it. Because yeah, so far, I've been enjoying what I've seen. There are, of course, some niggling problems with it. You see backscabbards, which makes the whole thing look like Conan. People are walking around with Roman-style rectangular shields at one point. But for the most part, it does a really good job. 
And really, it's TV, so you have to expect some errors. Oh, and there's also some people who look like they're wearing clothing out of Land's End. But overall, we have been enjoying it, and so you can look forward to those reviews coming up. Lucy Koger asks, Do you write a script for your show before you record? And how detailed is it? She also asks, What do you like to do when you're not podcasting? Hi, Lucy. Well, for those of you who don't know, Lucy is a 12-year-old history podcaster who does one hell of a job on her show, Great Battles of History. Okay, so for your first question, yes, I write a detailed script. Talking off the cuff about history makes me a bit nervous since misspeaking is common when people just casually chat. In fact, even when reading from a script, I can sometimes accidentally say the wrong thing because my mind is already jumping to the next point. There have even been times where I've had to re-record entire episodes because I started speaking off the cuff and while it seemed to flow when I was recording, when I look back on it during editing, it was clear that it was just a rambling mess. As for what I like to do, Z and I are quite fond of going out and finding adventures. And as luck would have it, Portland has a lot of adventures to get into. For example, the other day we went and saw a lumberjack-themed circus act. It was like a little indie bearded Cirque du Soleil, and it was one of the more Portland things I've done in quite a while. It was also a ton of fun, and these guys travel. They're called Cirque Alphonse, and you can look them up. They're great. We're also big fans of the arts, and we're also Timbers fans, so we like to go and see their matches whenever we can, and usually you can find us in the army chanting or giving ourselves headaches shouting at the refs, depending on how the game's going. I also like to cook. I made bangers from scratch for the first time the other day, and that was awesome. And if anyone wants the recipe, I can probably put it up online somewhere because I feel like I really nailed it. But that being said, a lot of times we just like to take a board game to our local pub and settle in or hang out and chat or see a fun movie. Honestly, my life with Z is a bit like a nonstop slumber party with my best friend. It's pretty awesome. Brian Stisher asks, one, how long does it take to put a show together? And where do you get some of your obscure sources? And two, besides British history, what historical eras and places are most interesting to you? It really depends on how detailed and hard to entangle a story is. But usually, it takes about a week. I tend to release an episode the moment it's done. So if you look at my release times, that's usually how long it took to put together. For example, this episode has been a bear to put together. I think I'm on recording number four. I fell apart a couple times. Z listened to one of the attempts and told me I sounded mirthless, so I needed to try that one over again. We even tried it with the two of us just jumping back and forth, but it ended up becoming just way too complex and we were talking over each other and it just wasn't working. So I'm trying it again. So if you look at the recording schedule for this episode, you'll see that it took quite a while to put together. But yeah, basically, as soon as an episode is done, I try and get it into your hands. Now, the more obscure information tends to come from either a series of rather expensive volumes called English Historical Documents, and there's a bunch of those, and they contain translated historical documents from England. Obviously, that's in the title, right? And that's where I get my primary sources. My secondary sources come from scholarly articles, mostly, so like JSTOR and things like that, and I just try by hook or by crook to get my hands on as many of them as I can. As for history outside of Britain... I am fascinated with the Edo era of Japan. And specifically, the period I like is the point where the Edo era ended and the Meiji era begins. That point where the ancient samurai-dominated culture was collapsing and you had a new culture arising and there's all that fallout caused by it. 
It's a fascinating era. In fact, I've loved that period so much and I've loved it for so long that back when I was in high school, it was a major reason for why I learned Japanese. Mark asks, if you brought the BHP to the silver screen, what's the first historically accurate movie you would make? That's a good question. Maybe the Edwin saga? Although, I also really like the story of Caractacus and Queen Cartamandua. It has all the elements of a great drama. You know, you could open up with Caractacus fighting alongside his brother, Togodomnus, and seeing him fall in battle to the Romans, and then follow his guerrilla war against the Roman occupation. And meanwhile, you counterpoint that story with the politicking that was going on in the kingdom of the Brigante, and you cover what was happening between Queen Cartamandua and her husband, King Venutius. And of course, the torrid love affair between Cartamandua and her husband's armor-bearer, the dashing Velocatus. It would make for a great lock-stock-and-two-smoking-barrels style of film, you know, where you have multiple storylines happening and you're not sure how it's all going to shake out all the way until Caractacus arrives in the court of Queen Cartamandua, having recently lost at Flanimenech. And then all hell breaks loose. Alternatively, the story of Penda would be an absolute blast, and Oswiu was a born villain, so he'd be fantastic. Or you could do King Offa. His story would be great as well. And Charlemagne would be involved at that point. I don't know if I could pick a single one. I'd want to do lots of them. Deb asks, Have you ever made a playlist of all the music you've used on the podcast? I actually don't have a specific playlist for the BHP. The funny thing is that all the music just tends to be stuff that's on my iPhone. So I guess the name of the BHP playlist would just be Jamie's iPhone. Rod asks, what is the one thing that you've researched that made you go, wow, really? Wow. Okay, that's awesome. Well, based upon the recent episodes and the discussions that we've been having on Twitter, I would bet that a lot of you can guess what my answer is going to be. Battle cattle. Definitely battle cattle. Mark asks, if you had one hour to talk to a class of seven-year-olds about the Anglo-Saxons, what would you say? Or what would you focus on? That's an excellent question. I'd probably start by teaching them about the stuff that we covered in the Anglo-Saxon Childhoods episode that we did on the Members Podcast. My thought is that the first thing you need to do, especially with an unfamiliar setting, is to make it feel real and give the kids a way to imagine themselves in that world. Kids have great imaginations, and I want to give them as much material as I could to help them fill up that world. Also, kids are smarter than many adults give them credit for, so I wouldn't talk down to them, but instead, I give them as much information about daily life in an Anglo-Saxon village that I could. I'd also explain what the warrior culture was like, and how small a part of their world it was. I'd talk about farming, what their buildings looked like, what they wore, the games they played, maybe teach them how to play Neftafel, or maybe play some games with riddles. The Anglo-Saxons loved riddles, and there's at least a few of them that aren't racy. I'd probably also point out that since they're seven, they're one year away from being old enough to be trained for the Werod. And then, depending on the size of your class, I'd point out how small a group the Werod would be. For example, in a classroom of 30 kids, you probably wouldn't have one member of the Werod. Maybe, just maybe, you'd have one member of the Werod out of the entire school. It's a very small group, and that would be a really good way to teach them how small the warrior class was. 
So ultimately, my focus would be on culture, daily living, and other concrete things I could tell them about that would make the world feel real. I'd stay away from the traditional stuff, things like dates, names, and battlefields. I know that stuff is easily testable, and I think that's why many schools tend to focus on it. But when you're just memorizing dates, I don't think you're learning history. All you're doing is learning how to get an A on a test. And you've learned essentially nothing. For example, if you asked a bunch of Brits when the Battle of Hastings was, a good number of them would be able to tell you that it happened in 1066. But if you start asking why the Battle of Hastings mattered, they'll start shuffling their feet. And if you asked why it happened and how it impacted the lives of the common folk, I'm pretty sure that most of them will fake getting an important call and lead the conversation. And that sucks, because that part is the history, right? The dates and names of battles aren't history, they're just memorized facts. You can't really learn much from that. If you know that the Battle of Hastings happened on a particular date, but you don't know why, and you don't know how it affected history, what do you really know? So that's what I would be focusing on. The how and why, rather than the when. If you can make the world feel real to them, that will give you a really good foundation to start filling the world with details, and then you can get into the dates and names. But before you get into when the Great Heathen Army happened, you need to have a whole system set up where they understand why it happened, right? Because without establishing that basic understanding first, you're just asking them to memorize things for a test. And that's not fun, and more importantly, I don't think it's learning either. David asks, so we have people from basically today's Holland, Northern Germany, Belgium, and Denmark. Would it be wrong of me to think that the Viking raids and the coming of Danelaw are almost the same people harassing their descendants from many generations ago in Britain? Or would it be more correct to say that the Scandinavians and the Anglo-Saxons were two entirely different people coming from two different areas? This is actually kind of a tough one, so let's start with some basic parts first. Yes, it does appear that the Anglo-Saxon migrations came from part of the region that later migrated during the establishment of Danelaw. However, you run into all sorts of problems when you start to talk about them as a people. First, because we're applying our modern and very broad concepts of ethnicity upon an ancient culture that didn't share those concepts. Many of these groups were tribal and isolated and wouldn't see themselves as part of anything larger than their village, or maybe a loose confederation of villages. And that's about it. The other problem that you run into is the Volkerwanderung, the great wandering of the people. When the Anglo-Saxon migration happened, we were right in the middle of that. So people were moving all over the place, and they had about 300 years to move and resettle. And 300 years is a very long time. Even if populations didn't change and relocate, cultures would still change during that period. For example, the Anglo-Saxons of the 9th century have little in common with Hengist and Horsa, assuming that they actually existed. Finally, there wasn't a concept of a universal Scandinavian ethnicity that would have been accepted by all the people of the North from this period, at least as far as we can tell. And there almost certainly wasn't one that would have been seen as also encompassing the people who lived 300 years earlier during the Volkerwanderung. It's really easy for us to look back into the past and paint it all with a very broad brush and say, ah, you're all mostly northern and 300 years later, you're still mostly northern. So let's just assume you're all the same people. 
But that really is a massive generalization. And I don't think it's something that they would have agreed with. So were they part of the same people on a cultural and ethnic level? I don't think so. They did have elements of commonality, and there are shared aspects that both the Anglo-Saxons and the Danes could look back to, and we do see common links of a Germanic culture between them. But frankly, all of humanity can look back to common ancestral links if we go far back enough, so I don't think that's really what you're asking about, and I also don't think it would be really the answer to your question. So, I guess my answer would be that the 9th century Anglo-Saxons and the Danes were very different cultures, and the culture that Hingwar and Witzerk drew from wasn't the same one that Hengist and Horsa drew from. Things had changed. People had moved on. Ryan asks, Given your explicit opinion about the Great Man Hypothesis, although I must say implicitly you seem a bit keen on the idea, especially when it comes to Alfred in recent episodes, and he hasn't even done anything yet, would it be possible to do an interesting and informative narrative history podcast about a country or nation that never mentioned the names of kings, religious leaders, etc.? In other words, could you do your style of history podcast while putting the focus exclusively on the stories of lay individuals, real or imagined, and have the great men appear only as supporting characters, whose actions take place very far away with only minor impacts for the main characters of the individual stories. Yeah, yeah, you could absolutely tell stories like that. In fact, we've seen plenty of excellent books and television shows that focus on lesser-known figures of history. Furthermore, once we get into better recorded areas, we're going to have entire history books that are focused on lesser-known figures. So to answer your question, yeah, it's entirely possible to do this. But I want to address your earlier comments and clear something up, because talking about Alfred doesn't mean that I believe in the great man theory. Similarly, because I, and most scholars, don't subscribe to that theory, doesn't mean that we can't talk about leaders. So let's quickly explain what the great man theory is, because it's very important that you understand what it is that I, and most scholars, reject and it isn't the existence or acknowledgement of Alfred and his accomplishments. The Great Man Theory was invented in the 1800s by a Scottish fellow by the name of Thomas Carlyle, and it's summarized quite well in the following quote. The history of the world is but the biography of great men. Now, you could read his book if you'd like to know more about it, but the basic gist of it is that the world turns on the decisions of what Carlyle calls heroes. And these heroes, or great men, were able to single-handedly shape the world through their own personal characteristics and charisma. When you read Carlyle, you're given the impression that we are mere ants, and among us are demigods who change the world in accordance with their own will, just through the sheer force of their personality. All on their own, they are just that badass. Now, predictably, the idea was knocked down by Herbert Spencer about 20 years later, and for more than 150 years since, it's been ridiculed by scholars, and it seems that the only people who lend it any credence anymore are some amateur history buffs, a bunch of television producers, and certain podcasters. It's so derided that it's used as a slur among some scholars. And for good reason. It's an awful theory. And the flaws in it are revealed the moment you start to think about it seriously. The easiest way to explain why this theory doesn't work is to look at our recent history. Now, just about everybody listening to this is going to be familiar with World War II, so we're going to use that. 
Great Man argues that if you went back in time and you assassinated baby Hitler, World War II never would have happened. That's crazy. Hitler did not invent German militarism. He didn't invent grievance politics. He didn't invent nationalism, nor did he invent racism. And he didn't create the economic climate of Germany that led to so many angry and motivated people looking for someone to blame. He didn't do any of that. He just rose to the top of a cultural stew that was already on the point of boiling. Was he awful? Hell yeah, he was awful. And if I was talking about World War II, I would definitely talk about him. You can't not talk about Hitler if you're talking about World War II. But he didn't invent the culture that gave rise to Nazi Germany. He was just at the forefront of it. So does that make sense? The other side of it is that Great Man also basically argues that if you took Adolf Hitler and you placed him in Trinidad in 1830, you would still have the rise of a Nazi empire, only this time it would be based in Trinidad and a hundred years earlier. Or, if your kid brother was replaced at birth with baby Genghis Khan, we would currently be dealing with massive nomadic hordes coming out of your hometown. Because, you know, Genghis Khan. You know who really likes the Great Man Theory? The writers for the cartoon show G.I. Joe. Do you remember Serpentor, that ridiculous character that Cobra Commander hated? The guy who had the DNA of Hannibal and a bunch of other major figures all molded together and it made him like this super leader of Cobra? Well, that's basically the argument they're making, is that there's something magical about these world leaders. And if you took them all together, you would end up with this superhuman mega leader. You'd end up with Serpentor. Not only that, but his behavior would be dictated by the personal characteristics of those individuals. That's essentially how great man theory works, right? There's just something magic about these people. And they are the thing and the thing alone that changes history and sets history. It's a ridiculous theory, and it's been treated as such by scholars since the days of the American Civil War. And let me say that again. This theory has been out of favor since the days where a significant portion of the population of the United States thought slavery was awesome. Or how about this? It was a theory that was invented before we discovered germs. That is how old this theory is, and it really shows its age. Consequently, when I say that great man is stupid, I'm not saying that there weren't powerful people who made decisions. There were. What I'm saying is that I stand with about 150 years of scholarly thought that says the leaders aren't all that mattered. They weren't magic. So, no, to cover history in a way that refutes great man theory doesn't require that I never mention historical figures. What I do, and how I do the show right now, actually refutes great man. I talk about the nobles and what they're doing, but I also talk about the culture that they're a part of and how that influences their choices. That does it right there. I think a lot of times people just have a hard time with the idea of culture. So maybe think about it like an ocean. The ocean is all the people in the community and all the expectations and all the different cultural things that they got from their parents and their grandparents and their economic situation, the availability of resources. You have the weather, you have all kinds of stuff. All these different things make up that ocean. And the leaders, at least the successful ones, try and spot where waves are forming and then just surf them. Now, maybe they change direction a little bit, going up or down beach. But at all times, they are being propelled by the wave. They're not creating it. And they're definitely not creating the ocean. 
They're riding it. So that's why Great Man doesn't work, because it thinks that the leaders are the ocean. And as for the culture, the people, the economics, the technology, the climate, and everything else that you could possibly imagine, all of that, well, that doesn't matter. Because the leader said, let there be an ocean. And there was. And it was good. At best, it's lazy scholarship. And at worst, it's propaganda. Because you cannot, you simply cannot understand or study the past without taking into account culture. It just can't be done. Not even if you're just talking about generals and battles. And here's why. Leaders are constrained by their culture and reflect their culture. It's true now, and it was true back then. Great man disagrees, and that's why it's wrong. Sal asks, Do any of the characters that we've met so far on the BHP bring to mind any Song of Ice and Fire slash Game of Thrones characters? Martin based at least some of his work on the Wars of the Roses, at least in terms of the role of heraldry and the calling of the banners. It stands to reason that there would be at least some strong archetypal resemblances. I really wish I could give you a better answer than this, but not really. The only thing that Martin's universe and the Heptarchy seem to have in common with at this point in history are a bunch of different kingdoms. Now, he does appear to have drawn his narratives from history with regard to a whole bunch of different characters. Aegon the Conqueror jumps right to mind. But overall, I don't think we can see much of a connection between the Anglo-Saxon kings and the Song of Ice and Fire. And thank God for that. Can you imagine the hissy fit that I would throw if our scribes spent one-third of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle talking about how cold it is in the North the way Martin did in A Dance with Dragons? We get it, Martin. It's cold in Winterfell. We've known that since 96. Get on with the story. Luke asks, If you had to choose one god in history to worship, which one would it be? David Bowie. Nick asks, You've mentioned a number of times that the Brits asked the Emperor Aurelius to help against the barbarians, and he said you're on your own. That's when the Romans left Britain. So my question is, who were the Britons who asked Aurelius for help? Was it a number of people over time, or was it a central authority or a nominated person? To whom did Aurelius send his response, and how was that response disseminated to the Britons at the time? I'm pretty sure you meant Honorius, actually, so I'm going to roll with that. But the funny thing is that you seemed so sure about the Aurelius thing, who, to my knowledge, didn't send any letters, that I ended up cracking open one of my Roman books just to make sure that I wasn't missing an emperor, or perhaps an honorary name. Classic neurotic me. But yeah, I'm pretty sure you meant Emperor Honorius, the guy who was writing letters saying to the Brits, you've got to look to your own defenses, I'm not helping you out here. So... To answer your question, this is one of those things where our sources fail us. We hear about these letters secondhand. Zosimus and Gildas talk about the Britons' pleas for aid and how Honorius wrote letters to their cities and instructed them to look to their own defenses. But as for specifics, like who they were being written to, how the response was disseminated, things like that, we're in a tight spot because of how dim our record is during the late Roman period. People just stopped writing stuff down for a while. My guess is that he probably sent letters to major figures within each civitas within Britain. But that's just a guess. I really don't know. Armando asks, when did history and facts become clearer? And so far, the feudal system doesn't seem to be in place yet. When did it become commonplace? 
Well, the first question is, I don't know. We'll start to have more information very soon, but as for clearer facts, that's a bit tougher. The record is always muddy, even when you have more sources. For example, try and get a clear factual account of any major political event that's currently happening in your country. No matter what happens, if it's a big enough event, you're going to find a wealth of differing opinions and perspectives. So if anything, the increased sources are actually going to make things more muddy rather than less. But if you're asking when we're going to start getting a wider range of records, things are going to really start changing with the coming of the Normans. Those French-speaking Vikings had their faults, but boy were they ever good at paperwork. And to your second question, feudalism will actually arrive in the form we commonly understand it in 1066, along with all those Normans and their paperwork. Phil asks, any suggestions on a cool two-syllable name from Dark Age England? It's for a puppy. Woofa, obviously. Woofa was the ancestor of King Raidwald. And seriously, Woofa. Why are we even talking about this? And it's spelled W-U-F-F-A. Woofa. Noah asks, did Alfred ever get over his disease? Well, immunodisorders never really go away. So they do change. And there are some interesting myths regarding the development of his disease. Basically, it moved from external symptoms, bleeding from the butt, to internal symptoms, mind-bending pain. And it's that transition that makes people think that he had Crohn's disease, actually. Though, at the time, they explained it as God listening to his prayers for relief and being kind of a dick about it and saying, well, you said you wanted the hemorrhoids to stop. But you didn't say anything about whether or not you wanted your intestines to be on fire, so I'll just assume you do. Like Alfred was just wishing on the monkey's paw. Ethan asks, I know that Edward expelled the Jewish community from England towards the end of the 13th century. When was that community first established? Was there any sort of a Jewish presence in Britain during the Roman period? What about the Anglo-Saxon period? Well, I'm not entirely sure. This does require more research and some materials that I've been looking for haven't arrived yet, but my understanding from the materials that I've been able to get my hands on is that while the Jewish diaspora was present in Europe, there wasn't a large recorded presence in England until after the Norman Conquest. However, as I said, I need to do more research to say that conclusively, but that's what I've been able to find so far. Actually, this might be a good time for me to explain how the show is made. Everything is done on a rolling basis, and that means that I have a broad understanding of British history, and that allows me to craft large-scale narratives. But as for the deep and detailed analysis, well, that occurs as I approach the years in question. As a result, if you ask me about the 13th century, or even the 11th century, my answers are a lot more general than if you ask me about the 9th century, because that's an area that I've already done a bunch of reading on. But even with the 9th century, I am constrained by my sources. And if my records aren't talking about a Jewish settlement in the 9th century, then I just don't know about it. But anyway, based on what I've read so far, and based on everything that I've been looking through, the arrival of a formal Jewish community was a post-conquest event. However, records are sparse, and we know that the Anglo-Saxons were at least aware of the Jewish people through the Old Testament and it's entirely likely that some Jewish people did come to England before the conquest. But as for the records that I've found thus far, they all seem to be post-conquest. Jeff asks, 
When the Romans hastily pulled out of Britain in the early 5th century, were the patrician Romano-Britons able to keep their status and lands, or were they quickly pushed aside by the Saxons and others? That's a good question, and it's difficult to say what exactly happened because of how sparse our records are. We simply lack detailed accounts from this period, but what I will say is that a few leaders and individuals that we know about from the early post-Roman period seem to have drawn from an aristocratic past. Ambrosius Aurelianus, for example, or Patricius, or as we know him, St. Patrick. Both of them come from aristocratic backgrounds, so it seems that some of the old status of the Roman period held on for a while. And that's the case with status a lot of times. Culture might change, but the upper echelons tend to hold on to power as best as they can. And you might remember that we do have pockets of society that remained for a while. You might remember the trading towns that survived in the post-Roman era that we talked about back in A Tale of Two Cities, for example. And Churditch is a really curious figure. He's the founder of the House of Wessex, but his name is weirdly British. So was he one of the examples of someone with an aristocratic past that ended up rising up and leading his own community, first called the Gwissa and later the House of Wessex? I don't know. So did they hold on? My guess is that, yeah, they probably did, at least for a while. But... Ultimately, this might just be something that's lost to history. Mark asks, So why are Kent and Wessex still discussed as two kingdoms with one king, rather than as a single kingdom? You mentioned several episodes back that we will see the English emerge under Alfred. But did Unferth see himself as West Saxon, Kentish, or Greater Wessexish? Well, to start with, Greater Wessex is just a Dumville term. I don't think that anybody back then was talking about Greater Wessex. But yeah, there still are two kingdoms, even though they're in the process of getting mixed. There were actually two courts, and charters came from two separate groups. Kent and Wessex just weren't fully unified yet. But Athelbert, and now King Athelred, were working to fix that issue. But for right now, there are just two kingdoms and one king but it's not like that's the only time we've ever seen that happen in history. There have been plenty of times in history where people have been kings of this country, that country, and that country over there, but those kingdoms weren't fully unified into a single kingdom. Now, with regard to how Unferth would have seen himself, he would probably see himself as part of his family first, then his village, and then maybe his kingdom. You're right that Alfred was trying to create a larger English identity, but that really takes time. I mean, he had an outside threat in the form of Vikings to help him along, and that definitely doesn't hurt, but it still is a slow process. And to see how long it takes for identities to blend, look no farther than the EU. Try and find me someone in the EU who sees themselves as European first, and Belgian, German, English, whatever, second. This stuff takes time. Hell, here in America, Texas has been part of the Union for pretty much forever. But if you talk to a Texan, you've got a good chance of hearing something about secession and how they're not really American, they're Texan. Identities, man. They just hold on for dear life sometimes. Cat asks, First of all, this cut off your nose despite your face thing, starting with St. Abba the Younger, who might not be real, feels super apocryphal and probably is, and I'm okay with that. But what I'm wondering is if this practice of disfiguring yourself to protect your chastity was even a practice. Did the nuns take an oath of chastity? Did everyone at the monastery? All right, to start with, 
St. Abba is a really funky story. Basically, it's the story of a nun up in Scotland who was getting harassed by Vikings and was worried that she was about to get raped. So she chopped her own nose off and that freaked out the Vikings and they left without raping anybody. And so to start with, I agree with you, Kat. The St. Abba story seems entirely apocryphal as many lives of saints tend to be from this period, frankly. And in particular, this saint comes out of Scotland, which is pretty badly documented during this era. So it's territory that was ripe for myth. Don't forget that this is the same region that gave us the story of how St. Columba scared off Nessie. And the part that you didn't mention, and I did into my preamble, is the fact that the Danes later returned and killed everyone and burned the place down. Now, if it was a lie no one was left to say, hey, that's not how it happened. She didn't chop off her nose. She was picking her nose. And then the Vikings took offense and started setting everything on fire and killing everyone. There's no one to say that because there were no survivors, at least according to the myth. And frankly, that's the perfect situation in which to create a myth. You can say that literally anything happened and no one can argue. And I find it likely that it was constructed to provide a lesson in martyrdom because that was a major theme from this period. It was also probably written to give a lesson in the importance of chastity. Like with much of the writing during this period, if women were referred to, it was often in reference to their sexuality in one way or another. Like our modern culture, the people back then both vilified and obsessed over women and their naughty bits. With regard to other examples of self-mutilation in defense of chastity, I haven't come across any other stories like this thus far in my research, but as I mentioned earlier, I do research on a rolling basis, so something might come up later. Something important to note, though, is that chastity and celibacy aren't the same thing. Well, they weren't. Now they kind of are. But chastity was just keeping from doing the deed in an unlawful way, basically outside of marriage. Now it's seen as never doing it, but it wasn't always that way. And I know this isn't a Christian history podcast, so I'm not going to go into a complete theological debate about this whole thing. But you should probably know that the rule that says you can't ever have sex if you want to be in the church didn't get instituted until after the Norman Conquest. That means that for more than a thousand years after the death of Christ, pretty much over half the existence of the church itself, there is no official rule against members of the church having sex which does account for names like McTaggart, which means son of the priest. So there you have it. All right, last question. Sasha asks, have you ever fancied a historical figure? If so, who and why? All right, I've had like a month to work on this and I've been racking my brain for an answer because I want to be able to say, oh yeah, yeah, it was this person right here and I'd wreck that like Diana. But honestly... I, too soon. (laughs) Oh my God. But honestly, I've never actually had a reaction to a historical figure. And that might be partially because almost everyone we've been talking about is a dude, thanks to our sources. And I'm not into dudes. But even with a few women we've talked about and later women that I know about, I still wouldn't say that I fancy them. I'm sort of an emotional and cerebral guy, I guess. So for me to fancy a girl, I need to have some sort of connection. As a result of this, there's no opportunity for me to form a connection to a historical individual because I never get to know them and have a sense of who they are. 
So that chemical and interpersonal part is completely lacking. And the view that I get of people from the past is distant. And distance doesn't do it for me. So even if we did cover more women, I'd still likely not have an answer for you. Okay, you can do better than that. I know, I know. But I really don't fancy anyone. Nope, you can do this. I can do the, I'm a political person, engage in a debate. I'm not going to answer your question, but I'll answer a different one. No, because that's disgusting and everyone hates people who do that. Who do you fancy from history? Gun to your head, if you had to choose one out of everyone you've covered so far, who would you pick? Like, who do I think would be the best one night stand? Oh, yeah. Okay. I think that probably Gildas would be the best out of the bunch. What, <laughs> Gildas? Yeah. Okay, no, 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 no. Explain this. No, no. Think about it. That guy was crazy. He was absolutely insane. So you know that he wouldn't leave anything on the table. That would be one wild night of passion. And here's the thing. He wasn't just crazy. He was also incredibly staunchly Christian and epically judgmental. All he ever wrote about was people that he disapproved of and looked down on. And usually with judgmental people, they look at themselves the hardest. So if he is dealing with internal like desire for me, if he's just like, I need Jamie, right? But he's also really concerned about the fact that sodomy is outlawed. So he's obviously going to be judging against himself. He's going to be just beating himself up. If he gets past that point, if he gets past all the guilt, I would guess that he would be 100% in the moment. Okay, so you're going for the Catholic schoolgirl approach. I'm going for the crazy, conflicted, guilt-besotted monk. <laughs> what? <laughs> All right, I'm ending it here. <laughs> better for everybody. Uh-huh. Happy 200th episode, everyone. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about my choice of Gildas, feel free to write me at the British History Podcast at gmail.com. You can also tweet me on Twitter under the hashtag Gildas, really? All right, thanks for listening. Okay, well, that's probably going to go on the uh, the episode, so you're going to be famous once again. Oh, dear. <laughs> oh, dear, that's terrible.